Hi and welcome to the podcast, You're Having Tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Sammy Shah, who's an old friend of mine and a broadcaster, book writer, author, I think is the word, and a comedian. I've known him for a long time and he is a delight. We spoke to uh, we spoke in this podcast about his experience with the ABC, uh, with censorship, and with his relationship to comedy performance. And I hope you enjoy listening to the podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it with him. It was really nice just to have the opportunity to catch up with him. Uh, if you want to watch my shows, I'm sure um, Savage on Amazon Prime is available. I'm also doing a show on Next Up on the 23rd of July that will probably be way early in the morning Australian time, but it will be in the evening UK time, so you can Google that if you want to see the parody of comedy that is comedy without an audience. Um, But I think that's all I have to plug other than, of course, at the last post, my incredibly stupid podcast that is set in an alternate dimension and it is daily. So if you want a 10-minute dose of absurd comedy that is sort of like satire but it's not about the real world, go listen to the last post. I've noticed somebody told me that there's some really lovely reviews for Savage on Amazon Prime in the UK and that they're sort of disproportionately lovely. So if any of you are responsible for that, thank you so much. Thank you. That really means a lot. Uh, Your support means a lot in general. Thank you so much to my Patreon subscribers. That support has been uh, (laughs) indescribably um, powerful and important for me, both in terms of getting me through this lockdown period where the rest of my industry has evaporated into thin air and as well uh, and as well the kind of emotional support the the validation that I'm doing something good and that there are people who like what I do uh so thank you for that thank you so very much enough enough blithering enough rambling enough sappiness I'll let you get on with listening to this podcast with Sammy Shah I hope you enjoy it I'll talk to you next week you're having tea with Alice Hi and welcome to the podcast, You're Having Tea with Alice. This week's guest is Sammy Shah. I'm going to ask you, who are you and what are you drinking? I am a, um, I'm a comedian and a writer um, and I suppose formerly a broadcaster, uh, but mostly these days a comedian and a writer. And I am currently drinking a, so it's a herbal tea called Joshanda. Um, it's from Pakistan. And it's basically kind of got a licorice base and it's, uh, there's rumors in Pakistan that it's packed full of steroids because whenever you fall sick, you just have this, you feel better (laughs) miraculously. Um, Every foreign correspondent or war journalist or anyone who's ever spent time in Pakistan swears by it, carries bags full of this in their satchel and stuff. And, um, and, and, and for me, it's just become like my go-to tea because I just like the taste of it. It kind of tastes of home as well. Um, and normally I hate licorice, but I like Dushanda. So, yeah. Oh, this is ster- very interesting. How do you feel steroids. about... Well, I'm drinking a Gyokuro, or I'm literally just finishing mm-hmm. my uh, Gyokuro, which is very high-quality emperor-grade uh, green tea. Uh, and you eat the tea leaves afterwards because they're not oh, processed. interesting. So you have them with a bit of soy sauce and a little bit of citrus and... Uh, Man, is it a lovely caffeine situation because yeah. it hits you very slowly, but it does caffeinate you a lot. Excellent. Um, Excellent. So, so this uh, tea that you're drinking mm-hmm. is it sort of the equivalent of Jewish grandma chicken soup, or is it? Yeah, I mean, we also have the Pakistani grandma chicken soup, and we've got all those things as well. But yeah, for, it's basically, um, honestly, if. If you give me one second, let me go and get the list of ingredients because you might know what's in this, but I have yet to figure out. Hang on one second. <laughs> I mean, this is Tea with Alice at its sort of pinnacle. Is somebody telling you about their the ingredients of their tea? I, right, I love, and this I is that. and this is so it's called Johar Jashanda. Um, I introduced my wife to it when we first met, and it ended up with her whole family having like five cups of tea a day and and <laughs> being addicted to it entirely. Um, so yeah, it comes in a box, and you can buy it from any Pakistani or Indian store. Um, and there's little sachets, and the ingredients list is 
So licorice extract, um, vasaka, khashkhash. I don't know what either of those are. They're from my <laughs> land. I have no clue. I think we just made shit up. Um, starch, fine. <laughs> maiden hair fern. Um, I know maiden hair fern. Mm, prehistoric. Okay, so that's a real thing. I, I just assume this is very much like the witch's brew kind of, uh, you know, and, and the dreams of a unicorn. Um, hyssop, uh, ephedra, uh, herbal extract. Ephedra? Extra- yes, ephedra. Why not? Um, Holy shit. Probably an, an antibiotic or something. I have no clue. Just, or to uh, give it a horse. No, sir. Is that not like pseudoephedrine? Like, isn't ephedra like a st- serious stimulant? Is it? Can cause like heart conditions? Are you serious? Hang on, let me look. I up. am. I'm. I could be wrong. Understand. I don't know. It's ephedrine. I'm. I could be wrong there. I, okay, I'm, I'm looking I'm up ephedra. Almost certainly yeah. wrong. Ephedra is a medical, um, is a medicinal preparation from the plant ephedra sinica. Several blah blah traditionally been used for a variety of medicinal purposes. Um, yeah. So it doesn't. See, I think it's a bit different from that. Well, okay, the FDA, good. the FDA did ban ephedra. Okay, that's what I was... The F- yeah, if you know anything about the FDA, they don't ban a lot of things. Um, yeah, I remember, I think there was a scandal because I think a lot of uh, weightlifter bodybuilders were using it to cut quite high doses and then some of them well, had heart attacks. As anyone who's seen me knows, I am ripped to the T. You know, <laughs> I am just abs and pecs, so obviously it's working. <laughs> Um, just abs stacked on top of pecs stacked yeah, on top yeah, of yeah. abs off in yeah. weird directions <laughs> I mean I have oh. abs on my arm I have pecs on my knee it's weird <laughs> and then fennel okay. oil eucalyptus oil and preservative of sodium benzoate which thank god you know I needed my sodium benzoate hit every day so oh. I mean but that yeah, sounds then- <laughs> exa- exactly like a witch's brew that's amazing I need to get my hands on some of this but it tastes get- great it tastes really good, and it's uh, and it's basically something that yeah. Whenever you're feeling, whenever you flu or anything, um, I know I genuinely know a lot of war correspondents with CNN, BBC, and stuff who over the years, whenever they come to Pakistan, would buy boxes and boxes of Jashanda and take it with them because when they're in the field, they can't afford to fall sick. And the moment they start feeling something happening, they'll have you know a couple of uh, cups of this and they'll be fine again. Not a good sign. <laughs> you know, yeah, nothing well, should be I that mean, miraculous. Maybe in the way that like pseudoephedrine does stop you have yeah. showing symptoms of a cold, it's probably uh, yeah. based on that. That's fantastic. Well, I'm that's a good tea story. Uh, the second question that I normally ask people is what they've been wrestling with. Oh, what I've been wrestling with so much. I mean, the isolation has taken its toll <laughs> in terms of mental health, in terms of uh, careers, and all of that stuff, and. Um, but you know, at the same time, it's also looking at the global situation and that's kind of inescapable into, in, you know, as, as something you think about, but honestly, okay. The thing I've been wrestling with the most, more than anything else is stand up comedy these days. You know, it's my place in comedy, the role of comedy, um, the value of it, how I want to continue doing it and what I want to do with it if I do. So that's been like a big thing for me for a while now. So let's unpack that. So before you say for a while, you mean you're meaning before the uh, health mm-hmm. pandemic shut everything yes. down, and then now obviously all of those feelings have been kind of a given play. B, mm-hmm. you've taken away the adrenaline slash uh, whatever dopamine hit that you get from the performance, the addictive That's element right. of the performance. So I guess why don't we start with how you feel about comedy in general and then go to your feelings about your place in comedy. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, I still love it as an art form. I still love the variety of it. I love the fact that when people say they don't like stand-up comedy, and there are many people who say that, it's like saying that you don't like music or you don't like jazz or something, you know, something like that, where it's like, no, no, it's, it's a whole thing. You might as well say you don't like reading books because there's many genres in there and stand-up comedy is the same. I mean, you know, the, the same field can have Hannah Gadsby and can have Joe Rogan with their completely different points of view. And you can watch both their specials and laugh and, and think about different things. And, and, and so there's a real value and, you know, to it. To people like, like Zoe Kumsma or yeah, like Tom Walker, where it's not even exactly. about a point of view. It's just a exactly. cartoon. Exactly. It's the fact that like, like yesterday I heard um, uh, The Great Depression. Uh, the album by Gary Goldman. Gary Goldman. God, he's a sweetheart. And and he's... his, um, 
I've been obsessed with this comedy for years and years and years, but it was always, and it was always one of those things where I was like, where's he in this? You know, it's very much a, the reaction you have when you listen to Seinfeld, which is like, where is Seinfeld in these observations? Um, and with Gary Gullman, the observations were so sweet and so beautifully written and everything. And I always wondered, where was he? And now with Great Depression, we know where he was in it. And it's such a personal album and it's so um, self-aware and yet also so funny. And you think like, oh, no other art form does this. No other art form literally has a person with a microphone and their thoughts, and they will fill an hour of your life with laughter and wisdom and, and intelligence and critique and insight and all those things. And I love stand-up comedy for that. I also feel like in the end, I've never found a kinship with any community the way I have with stand-up comedians. You know, I've been a journalist, I've worked in advertising, I've, I've been a writer and I've done those things. And, but whenever I'm in a comedy club, you know, from the degenerates to the to the to the heightened you know intellectuals, they're all people that I feel comfortable around. Yeah, they're all people who are. It's it's an odd mix because everyone is an outsider, and you yeah. have this mix of self awareness, occasional narcissism, and yet even the narcissists are relentlessly outward focused. They have to be aware of yeah. if they. Any, to be any good at the at the craft, they have to be aware of the impact that they're having in the room or the impact they're having on other people, you know, which is what makes, I guess, when it, when it, it comes to bad behaviour backstage, mm-hmm. it becomes so egregious if somebody who is choosing not to see you as a person, particularly along those gendered lines, which is the thing I say about Chris D'Elia. We were backstage once mm-hmm. at the gig. I can't even remember what it was, but that just he looked at me like I was a non-person and I sort of dismissed him because that's a type. Yeah. And then all these scandals came out. And to me, that is not surprising. That's a person. Well, there's a, there's a like female comic in Perth who just sort of recently, and I won't mention her name because I don't know whether she wants a name mentioned, but she mentioned on her Instagram that she opened for him. And he did the same thing to her where it was, a, you know, he ignored her entire, even though she was his opening act. And her joke mm. was clearly it wasn't because he didn't think I was unfunny. It's because I was just too old. Um, but you know, it is kind of that sort of thing. So when, yeah, whenever, when comedians are so blind to their own behavior, um, it's obviously, it's concerning because it feels like a lie. Um, somehow worse. It's somehow worse because their job is to be conscious of the impact that they're having on the people around them. So it's, it's a betrayal of, of everyone. (laughs) But I wonder, do we, when we're on stage, for example, do we see the audience as people or are they a tool? You know, is it, how much of it is us going, you better laugh at my joke because I made this joke. And how much of it is us going, you are all individual humans with thoughts, feelings and emotions, and I want to connect with you. So for me, that's an interesting question. And sorry to have hijacked this. No, no, not at all. We'll bring it back to you in a second. But um, that is a really interesting question. For me, one of the things that I tend to do with my shows is stay on stage, stand on stage while the audience is coming in. I don't like the bright, if this is a solo show, obviously, there's a difference between a club and a solo show. Um, I tend to be on stage while the audience is coming in because of that. I want to introduce them to me as a person and me to them as a, a, a person. Right. And um, be very aware of all the people and the faces in the audience because otherwise... It can feel like you're, you're working with a canvas or an ocean or, or some sort of ephemeral force that is not made up of individual people. And I prefer having that that level to it. And that's the mm-hmm. kind of comedy that I like to do. I like to really, I think of my project in comedy is to make people feel more human, be more aware of the people around them. And that's the thing that I've been thinking about a, a lot in terms of, you know, that defensive urge you get when people say, well, what are you doing about Black Lives Matter? Or what are mm-hmm. you doing about sexism in the industry? What are you doing? And it feels a bit like a cop-out, but it is really my ethical, fundamental ethical principle is I try to teach people to treat other people like people. Yeah. And that's <laughs> and what that I envy. sounds, you know, wishy-washy, but... No, but it isn't. But I envy that because you've figured out an ethic, you've figured out a ambition and a goal and a focus that drives your comedy. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm floundering with is I don't have that anymore. Um, or I'm still, or I'm figuring it out or I'm not sure where I stand on like what mine are. 
and and you know and i spent so long being so sure of my comedic voice there's um there's a mark maron line which was basically that you know comedians spend the first 10 years figuring out their voice and the next 10 years actually defining it and and i feel like um i'm what i started doing comedy in 2005 stand up comedy so you know it's been 15 years now and and i feel like i'm less sure of my voice now than i was even 3 4 years ago Yes, but you've also started comedy again in different countries and different formats. Yeah, and that's been part of it as well because you know when I was in Pakistan, like, it, it, like, like, just go back to the kinship angle. You know, the kinship with other comedians. Um, you had Mike Schmidt on recently on your on your podcast, and the way I know of Mike Schmidt is because he used to be on a podcast called Never Not Funny. Um, yes, and that's a podcast that's still going on. It's Jimmy Pardo, it's Matt Belknap, and it used to be in season one, Mike Schmidt, and. and i was in pakistan doing stand up comedy there were no other stand up comedians i could connect with or anything and there was one other guy and he and i kind of just sort of didn't get along very well <laughs> and because we dated the same person at one point in our life and, oh, and so that it is was, the most comedy thing i've ever right exactly <laughs> and so um and so you know it was just a weird bit a weird element and then i connected and then i started listening to this podcast and i was like why are these guys in la with all the comedy stories and everything somehow more relatable to my emotional state than people around me and that's when i first realized oh maybe comedy is my tribe maybe that's my my community and when i first moved to perth or to, to wa anyway and i lived there for 4 years like the first time i ever did a gig in a comedy club i've been doing comedy for 8 years at that point 9 years and now the first time i ever entered a comedy club was when i moved to australia because i'd just been doing it in <laughs> pakistan in theaters and and online and i was backstage at a comedy club and there was a bunch you know lord davis was there and a bunch of other comedians were there and and i remember going man i found my people and i and i felt really connected to everyone but i think coming to melbourne kind of affected all of that because coming to melbourne i got here i got a job i got you know all the other things going and i stopped hanging out with comedians and spending time mm-hmm. at clubs i just go do my gig and leave because i have my daughter and i have have my partner and and have a job and and all that stuff and and i kind of lost the tribe and with that i think i lost my voice a little bit as well because i kind of got caught up in the comedy festival thing of like you know this year i want to win an award or this year i want to get nominated for something and i'll write a show that's poignant and meaningful and and somehow it's and i would i do the same show in perth and it'd be really funny and i do it in melbourne and no one would laugh and then i'm like why is it not working here and and it just it's so many things that are just piled on top of each other that now i'm i literally have to deconstruct my comedy Well there's that's really interesting and I think a good worthwhile project I think for everybody to do to think about what they're doing why they're doing it and whether it's still working for them because you can mm-hmm. fall into that habit of telling the same jokes a million times I heard a guy very heartbreakingly say and again I won't name names because mm-hmm. it doesn't reflect particularly well on him he was saying I can now do all the jokes the sexist jokes I did in the 80s as long as I say white women rather than women oh, Jesus the, they work again no, and i can do them in no, that doesn't no okay it's a wrong <laughs> lesson like, from oh, everything oh, that's happening <laughs> that is brutal but i they so this is i think it's a really interesting uh, thing to think about because on one hand for many people in australia particularly it's very hard to make a living doing comedy it's very hard yeah. to have a job that is comedy unless you're willing to be on the road the whole time and never really have like a middle class existence never have a house you know which as a parent you can't do, that, do. Mm-hmm. which as a parent you can't do and there are a few successful comedians who can make a good living but it's not like england where there are many comedians who have a nice life and a family and you've never heard of them mm-hmm. they just do the clubs in australia you either have to have a different job a second job or you're aiming for a radio show or a television show if you yes. are a mainstream act commercial radio is the gold standard if you are an act who likes to say what they think uh, rather than what you're being told your your pinnacle the, the the ceiling of ambition in australia sort of tends to be an abc radio t- show which i got which is a thing <laughs> that you got so i and got so all me, of those things and it you ruined, got all of those ruined. things I ruined it for me. It ruined comedy for me. It ruined my <laughs> happiness for me. It it it's left me in a in a much worse place than than when I before I had it, I think. And if there's one regret I have, it's spending 2 years as a radio presenter for the ABC. 
because I think it did more damage to me comedy wise, you know, intellectually, emotionally, all those things than anything else I've ever done. Why do you think that is? Is it because, you know, be careful of what you wish for or? Um, well, I think part of it is why did I want it? And I think I wanted it because I come from a background where if you don't have a job, you are irresponsible and you are unreliable. Mm-hmm. And so you need, and so just to be a comedian, uh, just to be a writer, something like that was is just something that I could never I could never get my head around you know I envied everyone who did it and 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 so many of our friends do it and stuff and and they pull it off and they're not rich but they're well you know they're 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 okay they take care of themselves and and there were opportunities for me to be able to do just comedy and just writing or something like that and I always was like now I need a job I need a regular salaried income and so I looked around I was like oh you know every comedian's lining up to get on tv not many people are lining up to get on radio. I'll do that. And so I went off to radio and I went after it with a focus and I got it. And I became the, you know, co-host of a breakfast show here in ABC Melbourne. And it was, you know, a daily listenership of 80,000 people. Yeah, 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 everything. Um, and I and the first thing that they did was, they started doing, was they started saying, hey, you can't do stand-up comedy. Because when what you say in comedy affects your your image as a breakfast show host for the ABC. So we don't want you to do the comedy festivals. The first year I did the, the radio show, they, they told me not to do the comedy festival. And at the time I had a manager um, and he and I parted ways since then because we just had different philosophies. But at the time I was like, hey, this is bad. Comedy for me is my most important thing. This is the side gig. Comedy is my most important thing. Um, and I'd been listening to a lot of Patrice O'Neill um, who has obviously lots of problem, you know, rest in peace, but he has lots of problematic issues and views and everything. And, and, and he blatantly misogynistic in a thousand different ways. But the one thing I liked about him was his no compromise approach to his uh, credibility, where he's like, mm-hmm. if they, if they will always try to take something from you, and if you give them a little bit, then they will take all of it. And I, at the time said, look, don't let them do this. I don't want them to take away my ability to do comedy. Cause if I say yes, now they will control what I say more and more. Um, and my manager didn't back me and, and I ended up, you know, not doing the comedy festival that, that first year of doing the show. And after that it became, so I had to run every set by them. Every time I was going to do an open mic, I had to write it out first and share it with them. They, they would go through it for editorial policies. It was horrific. Um, I stopped digging entirely because it just wasn't fun anymore. I couldn't say the things I wanted to say anymore. I was constantly getting in trouble with them because I would tweet out something I would tweet out something like, oh my God, the Avengers Endgame trailer gives me a hard on. And they'd be like, you know, you shouldn't be saying that. Like, it's a really vulgar thing to say. And things that It got to the point where there was a white supremacist group harassing myself and my wife and for being an interracial couple. And when I told one of those guys to fuck off, the ABC made me apologize to the ABC for making them look bad by telling someone to fuck off. Like, and this is like, so it, it reached that level of like, you can't say anything. You will say That's what we tell you to say. That's horrifying that you yeah. can't defend your family. And, uh, and at the same time that that's happening, I'm being racially abused every day on the text lines and, and, and by callers and things like that. And, and I can't defend myself there. And, and that's fine. That's part of the gig. I get it. Right. But up to a certain it's not point. Fine. Um, it's not fine. No, it's not, yeah, you're right. no one fine. should it be asked to tolerate racial abuse in their workplace, whether it's from a customer. If you're in a cafe, and yeah. uh, I mean, I know this for a fact. I used to work in a cafe in the eastern suburbs of Sydney where a lot of South Africans came in, and not to stereotype South Africans, but there's a segment of South Africans that left South Africa when apartheid ended. And yes. they are in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and they will come and order a coffee, and they will have their opinion about you as a woman or, or you as a Jew or you as a, or my, my, my colleagues who happen to be, you know, people of different skin tones. Yeah. And, and if that happened, I would tell the manager because that's not allowed. You're not just, I mean, yeah. yes, I'm sorry. No. I'm a little bit, I don't, no, no. I understand that your position is to be reasonable on this and that, you know, this is a professional um, position and something that you were told, but I think that that is unacceptable. Well, I think, and, and that, you know, it leads to that conversation of like why you need to have more people of color working in your workplace because no one in management, no one on their level of, over there has is a person of color. So they don't know the toll that racist abuse takes. They think it's just the same as when someone would call John Fain a fuckwit, you know, or something like that. Because the idea being that well, all the presenters get cursed out. So, yeah, but it's a bit different when they're attacking your content versus they're attacking your person. 
So also, I don't think that <laughs> I don't think that they should. Uh, I don't think they should be telling you to accept abuse. No yeah, matter yeah. like to take it away from skin tone. If if you're a woman, or if you're fat, or if you're old, or if you're young, or if you're gay, any targeted abuse of of that kind should be met with zero tolerance. It shouldn't be aired. It yeah. shouldn't be given t- the time of day. It certainly shouldn't be met with patient calm on behalf of and it's not even by the time it gets to you it shouldn't be getting to you it should be their job to you know filter that shit out as it would be if you were in any other job in literally any other job like i said if you're a if you're a sanitation worker and you're picking up someone's bin and they systems in place you 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 can talk to your manager and they like yeah it's a thing so it was like this, this happened for a long time, but what happened was... A public the, servant, not a public slave. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and what would happen is normally in my life, whenever I go through anything or whenever anything's happening, anything of interest, right? Like when, there was a time when ISIS was after me because I wrote a book about being an atheist. And, and, and <laughs> like the first thing I, I did... Troll play. Yeah, yeah. The first thing that happened was I would go into comedy about it. That's how I process things. I'd get up on stage and I'd riff about it and I'd talk about it and I'd vent about it. And now they wouldn't even let me do that. So then I kind of lost that a bit. And then, you know, and, and that kind of made me have a, a distance from stand-up comedy where I started going, okay, what do I want my stand-up comedy to say? Because the comedy I've been doing isn't working. You know, it's that thing of like, you know, where you hit certain benchmarks in comedy, you get a special, you get a this, you get a that. Like, I didn't get those things. And for some, all my peers went further and further but because i never backed my comedy career i just had other jobs always i kind of stalled at a certain level as a comedian Mm -hmm. you know i'm a mid-level comic still in terms of achievement in terms of goals all of those things so i started going okay well how do i what what am i missing what's wrong with it why am i not getting better gigs why am i not getting better money as a comedian maybe the comedy is at fault so i started second guessing the comedy and then you know so that whole thing kind of caves in on itself that thought process where you just kind of repel down the pit of self and you just go deeper and deeper and deeper <laughs> until all of a sudden you're just going, well, I, I talk about politics. I talk about race. Clearly no one wants to hear that. I'll stop doing that. I'll just be, go back to being funny. You, my first few comedy shows when I was starting out were just funny observations about life. Seinfeldian observations. Go back to the, the purity of that. Okay. I'll do a show about the process of getting married. Somehow that whole show, even though I wrote it about the process of getting married, ended up also being about race and culture and society. And I was like, what the hell? This stuff keeps seeping in. Um, and then, the, and then that's what you're interested in. That's right, what you're good and at that's talking about. And that's what I'm going to talking about. And then, and then I'd see, like, I'd make the joke. And then, you know, and then that thing happens where, like, another comedian makes a similar joke, but they're getting acclaimed for it and you aren't. And so then that kind of like bitterness or not, not bitterness, because I'm not resentful of them. I'm more insecure of me then going, well, obviously I'm not doing this well enough. I'm not telling it funny. I'm just telling it. Whereas someone else is being funny with it. It's just nonstop. And so the end result is now as a comedian, um, you know, I just don't know what I want to say, how I want to say it, why I want to say it and, um, and where I want to say it. Which is interesting. (laughs) I mean, you, just before we were talking on the podcast, you were saying that you had tried Patreon and given it up mm-hmm. because I feel like that's something that would work for you. Well, I think what's happened is like I also with after the ABC, after they, they after two years of, you know, getting my ass kicked and everything, they didn't renew my contract anyway, um, which in retrospect, I'm grateful for. But at the time, it screwed me over financially, really badly, all of that stuff. I was like, yeah, I and that thing of like, I did everything you told me yeah, to. I yeah. compromised so much, and it still wasn't enough. That's yeah. heartbreaking. It is, and 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 it was one actually one of the first things Will Anderson told me because I reached out to him when I started off with the show, and I was, and he said, "Don't compromise your voice because if you do, the 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 people who like you won't like you anymore, and the people who don't like you will anyway not like you." But I did it anyway. <laughs> like I, that was my mistake. Um, <laughs> so. I think what happened was I kind of decided, I think I need a break from like the public eye from like doing things out in the open, you know, like I want, I miss doing a podcast, but part of me is like, I don't want, I just don't want to talk to the world anymore. I want to consume again. I've been putting out too long, you know, the output input thing that you'd once told me about. I've been outputting for so long. I think I need to go back to inputting for a while. 
And so I'm, you know, everything I'm working on right now is quiet. I'm working on a script for someone. And, you know, when it's finished, it'll, it'll be something, one of the hardest things I've ever written. But also, it's, gonna, it's not going to feature me other than written by Sammy Shaw. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it, you know. Um, I want to write another book. I want to do those things. And with stand-up comedy, I just want to go back to gigging I mean, your regularly. books are a delight, by the way. I enjoy your books Thank very you much. much. As a massive fantasy fan, a sci-fi fan, sort of having that. It's a thing that I've been, since I was in, in the Middle East, I've been fascinated by the kind of the mythology of yeah. you know, all of the, the you know, meeting people in that part of the world who genuinely 100% believed that there were gins just hanging out and affecting things and putting their fingers on, yeah. on the pulse of the world where it's just such a permeable kind of supernatural process mm-hmm. uh, that is still really extant in the world today in a way that our fairy tales aren't as much uh, yeah. over in the West. They tend to be very clearly delineated from real life. They're for um, children and then the, when you're an adult, you don't believe that. But where I come from, when you're an, like even now, like when I've been having a spate of bad luck, I'll call up my mom and be like, hey, can you give money to a charity that sacrifices black goats? Because maybe I've got some <laughs> bad luck on me. I'm a stone cold atheist, but I'm basically asking for the evil eye to be lifted still, you know? <laughs> I, I talked to a guy, uh, I have a friend who lives in Berlin who used to uh, live on the West Bank, and he had a friend who genuinely thought that the Israelis could hack the, the angels on your shoulders, that their technology was sufficiently good because the angels yeah, yeah, report yeah. to God about your, about your, that the, 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 that the Israelis had such high tech uh, hacking stuff that they could hack the yeah. angels and give a bad report to God about you. <laughs> If anyone can I mean, do that's it, it's amazing. the Mossad, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're the only ones who could pull it off, but yeah, but that's you know, like, of, uh, you know, anti-Semitism aside, that is an incredible idea for a story. Right, exactly. Um, uh, I wrote a short story for a anthology a while ago, which was about basically a drone, drone operator in America seeing a jinn in a village in Pakistan and how the jinn starts affecting the, the drone operator's life in America as well. So, like, I love that intersection Amazing. of myth, mythology and real life and, and modern life, really. Um, so, like, I like telling those stories. And, and then part of me thinks about that, where I've been thinking a lot about um, who's that British comedian? He does those three-hour shows where he, like, reads stories out and tells... Um, Daniel Kitson? Thank you, Daniel Kitson. Um, I went to Kitson's shows, the last two of them, and I was like, I want to do that. Like, I want to combine my storytelling, my writing, with my performance, with my stand. I don't even know how. I almost feel like, have you seen Highlander? I have, mm-hmm. yes. I've also read uh, read some of terrible fan fiction about Highlander yeah. for a project <laughs> that I did once. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't doubt that it was terrible, but... You know, like when when Conor McLeod from the Clan McLeod realizes that he is the Highlander, Sean Connery appears out of nowhere and then teaches him to run faster than a deer and and how to live and all of that <laughs> stuff. Gives him the life advice he needs to like get shit done. I need that. I need someone to come. Hey, this is how you combine this with this. When you do the show like this, it's going to be critically acclaimed. Everyone's going to love it, and you're going to be funny as well as poignant, and it's going to change the world in this way. Now get writing. I need a brief. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I I am super tempted to to be part of this project because I think it sounds fantastic. I could see you very much playing playing with uh, the literary in in stand up format because I think that's one of the things that is very much a part of your personality that doesn't show up on stage as it much doesn't. as I think yeah. it could. Because it, it, I don't know whether you've you've created a, a division in your mind or whether because it's because you came up in Perth and there's a sort of a very cultural mistrust of the literary mm-hmm. and the intellectual elite and that that wouldn't cut any cheese there or whatever. But I feel like that is such a one of the thing one of the most delightful things about doing the last post is that's you know it's satirical comedy yeah. set in an alternate universe and because it's got that already it's got that sci-fi twist i just drop fantasy elements in i drop sci-fi elements in i've got the dancy lagards which is a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a supernatural romance historical stuff and i get to use this whole segment of my misspent youth which was spent reading just trashy fiction in the back of bookshops and libraries mm-hmm. instead of studying or having friends and all of that gets to come in and i was so wary of that because I was so bullied for being that kind of a nerd and then feeling so many people connect with it actually
actually everyone knows, even people who don't read fantasy know a lot of the tropes of, of fantasy yeah. and of sci-fi yeah. and, and of narrative. And those things are so delightful to me and they bring me such joy that it's been just a relief. It's been a relief. It's been something that I have not really done in my comedy before mm-hmm. or not brought into my comedic voice before. And having that like affirmation, the fact that the Nancy Lagarde thing's gone absolutely wild in terms of, you know, my tiny, tiny listenership and my tiny, tiny fan base. Yeah. It's just so great. I'm like, oh, yeah, people are into this, you know? And I think that's just it. I haven't, I've lost my people because I haven't put out something that connects with people in a long time. And, I, and I, because I haven't put out something that connects with me in a long time. So, um, you know, I like horror. I like, I like those things. I like crime noir. I like comic books. So, you know, the, right now I'm writing a script for... Um, uh, for someone which is an audio play but it's a it's a crime noir audio play and and it's it's basically and it's something that's been really hard to write and kind of get my head around but i feel like i'm using a lot of my strengths in that and it's a little bit funny in places and even though it's dark so i'm proud of that but i i can do it in my writing i can do it in my books and stuff you know bring the comedy in i just don't know how to bring the writing into my comedy yet because as a comedian i still respect that that part of the craft which is to get up on stage and you riff about things like you think of a topic, you know, and then you go on stage and you work it out on the stage and it becomes funny and it becomes a bit about this subject, you know, and, and, and that's what I like doing as a comedian as well. So I don't know. And then there's this, um, my manager told me this and, and actually even other people have told me this in the past, which is focus on one thing, you know, don't be the jack of all trades, master of none. But all my role models are jack of all trades, masters of none. You know, they are just like Stephen Fry and, and 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 all these other people who did multiple things and did them well or did them badly, but did them did whatever they wanted to do. I've been lucky enough to do whatever I wanted to for a long time. Um, I just want to be able to continue doing that in a slightly more more um, successful and and fulfilling manner. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm I'm very much a jack of all trades, uh, master of none type, and it is one of those things. Again, I was told focus early on. What kind of comedian are you? What even on Twitter, someone said, pick a thing and do that thing. Be the person who does the this kind of tweet. Mm-hmm. And I get feedback regularly of like your voice in the last post is very different from your voice in Tea with Alice. Is very different from Savage. Is very different from the Bugle. And how do you reconcile all these different Alice's? That's all the same, Alice. This is me. This is I have that, and I have that. It's as, as though people were not, you know. And this is the, the the shame, I think, of reality television, is that it, it emphasizes and encourages people to appear and understand themselves as two dimensional, as as characters in this very artificial mm-hmm. narrative. But it's it's not how people are. People are. People are not a coherent whole. They're all Absolutely. different things in all different places and, 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 and at all different times. There's a, um, uh, I don't know if you follow comic book um, uh, news at all, but there's a writer named Warren Ellis. Um, and Warren Ellis wrote Planetary yes. Authority, a bunch of different comics. And he's basically been a big influence on my writing as a prose stylist and as a comic writer and everything. And, 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 and also, like, I was a part of the Warren Ellis Forum when it was a like, thing in the, in the early 2000s, an online community where we'd all hang out and connect and stuff. And I've been, a, you know, uh, an a, a acolyte for a long time. And, and, very, and, and a lot of the things I liked about his work were how progressive it was, how respectful of female voices it was and female points of view and things like that. And then a few days ago, it came out that he has been um, grooming and manipulating many women for many, many years who are young women trying to get into the industry. He'd become their mentor and then he'd manipulate them into, into sleeping with him and things like that. And a lot of them came forward and said, you know, he's, he's done horrific things to us, like not sexual assault, but, you know, that kind of manipulation and, and, and mind you know, games and all of that. And it really, and, and when Louis C.K. stuff happened, I, I, he was not one of my guys. Like I, I loved his comedy. <laughs> he wasn't one of the guys that I grew up listening to, obviously. But with Warren Ellis, it, I was like, wow, that really fucks in my head a lot. You know, I start thinking about um, what does it mean for him? What does it mean for his work and, and my respect for him and all those things. And one of the women wrote something really interesting. And she was one of the women he'd been um, really terrible to. Um, and she said, my former friend is a complex individual. He has opened more doors for more people, helped more people, been more generous with his time for more people than, than anyone I know. 
And also he has done this thing to so many of us. And so it's that thing of like, wow, yeah, people have multitudes within them. It's just a realization of that constantly. Um, and when you're a creative person, putting those multitudes outward is frightening because, you know, you'll do one thing, you'll go, I want to do something different now, I want to do something different now. And, and what if you spread yourself too thin and then you've forgotten your comedic voice? So, like, what's your process when you're doing stand-up comedy? Like, when you're writing a new comedy show, is the writing process similar to when you're writing The Lost Post or, or The Bugle or, or anything else? Uh, I think it sort of depends. With the true, I, I often write sort of uh, dialectically. I do everything dialectically, but uh, I will. So, for example, the resistance was an answer for me to Savage to some of the mm. criticisms or perceived criticisms. So Savage was this moment of rage that I felt in this interaction, and and I don't ordinarily feel angry. It's yeah, not one of my commonly hit emotional buttons um so it was a really distinct feeling of anger at something that was seemingly well meant what was that where did that come from why did i react and then how how razor thin can i slice reality so how little can i tell the audience because i don't want to expose my family i don't want to you know overshare i don't want this to be uh, you know exhibitionism mm -hmm. How little information do they need, if there's the audience need, to stand in my shoes at that moment? So I introduce the moment. It's very much, Savage is very much the unloaded gun, loaded gun. You have this intro, introduction of an, an idea. The, only the un, unfinished can contain the infinite. That's in a, like a clumsy relationship yeah. that I didn't have. And then it's in death. So it comes back. The whole structure of that show is is unloaded gun, loaded gun. So what can I, how can I bring the audience to this place of rage and despair and make it funny throughout? Yeah. And then I, so I did Savage and then the resistance was, okay, anyone can make you cry about your mum. Everyone has a mother figure or the absence of a mother figure. Everyone understands that relationship. Mm -hmm. Can I have something that is simultaneously funny and has an emotional impact that is completely unrelatable. My like, my mental granny and the weird yeah. house I grew up in, and growing up in a house that the, the ceilings were falling in, there were holes in the floor, and and there was a, a manic depressive Chilean gardener living upstairs, and there was constantly like the SWAT team being called, and there was like Asio guys smoking over the fence because my dad had been to Burma, and they were worried that like yeah. you know, and then every time you'd pick up the phone, there'd be a tap on the wire because they'd all had these terrible pasts. Can I make that relatable? And then Empire was, can I make it stand-up-y and resilient for like a 10.30 p.m. audience? Can I make that really engaging so it's not too high-flown? And so on and so, so, so forth. That's how I tend to write things. So, so you tend start, to start with, with the moment. Yeah, so you, but, you, you're, but you start with also the idea of these are things I want to achieve. Right? How do I want the audience to feel? Okay. One, and it usually starts with one emotion. Like how do I want them to feel? How do I get there in an interesting way that is yeah. a different way or in a unique way or how do I prove something in the way that I get there? So it's often coming at it from a couple of different angles because I believe in creative constraints. I believe in a sonnet rather than a free verse. Yeah. I, th enough. I think that I write best in limitations, that, that seeing how I can manage to do something within those limitations is the interesting project and for me. And that's the thing that maybe I, I've been lacking because when it comes to stand-up comedy, I always just like, ah, oh, you can talk whatever you want to talk about. So I ended up just talking about th random things, right? But the shows that I end up being, pr I, ha I was proudest of were the, were the one, was the one which was about my relationship with religion and all those things, and that had a constraint on it. It had to be a show about Islam in Australia, informing people about the, the, uh, about the history of Islam, and then also my break with it. And Yes, and, and it ideally like, not be so wild that it'll get you killed. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That should be the next time. How do you walk that but, line? But, but, you know, like the, I did one um, a few, uh, three years ago called Sacrifice, three years ago, two years ago called Sacrificing the Goat, which was about free speech in Australia and free speech in the world and, and, and how free speech works and things. And one of the critiques that I got of it 
was that it just wasn't that funny. It was really intelligent. It was really informative. It was all those things. Uh, Steve Bennett from Chortle actually said a really interesting thing, and because he saw it early on, he said, "Look, it's not cohesive yet. It's it, there's something great here, but it isn't there yet." Um, and I never kind of pushed it to make it something more. And I think mm. that, like, yeah, I just, I, it's one of those things. I just don't know what my style approach and and everything is, and how do I do the freewheeling, fun, riffing about things, crowd work approach to stand up comedy that I love and respect and adore doing, and how do I also tell stories, tell, make observations about the world, and 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 make it a a themed, poignant, constrained thing at the same time. Here's an idea, and maybe this is not for the podcast, maybe it's just for us to talk to each other about. But one of the things with Savage that I did was I had all of the jokes that I had written, all of the jokes that I was doing for stand-up at the time, and then I had this brutal story that I really wanted to tell. The very first time that I did it, when I until like the last minute I was sure I was going to cancel this show because Mm -hmm. I was dying. And I stood on stage with two piles of paper, one on each hand, and I thought, how many of these do I need to tell before I can get away with one of these? Yeah. So maybe it's a matter of in terms of giving yourself both the structure and the literary side of things and your riffing thing, go on with like maybe little pieces of fiction or little pieces of of seriousness or little pieces of whatever it is, whatever you decide the structure is, but like six of them. Mm-hmm. And that's the only thing you go on stage with. And then you find your way between them, how you get from one to the other. And that creative process of figuring out the narrative that links them and they could be completely separate I think that would be an interesting project for you to kind of you know loosen up that that joy I like that I had never thought about something like that I like that a lot so maybe you're my Sean Connery then (laughs) (laughs) I would so happily be your Sean Connery in that I I can't do accents (laughs) neither can I so I won't even bother either but yeah I really like that structure a lot it's definitely something I've never tried. Thank you. <laughs> actually, I can, I can do. Actually, I can do accents, but I can't perform accents. So I can do accents in like yeah. conversation, but if okay. I'm asked to do them in performance, I just don't. Yeah. Like I just, I, I'm just like, oh no. <laughs> I, I can't do something accents. Really... I can't do accents except for Pakistani accent and an Indian accent, which is a slight variation of a Pakistani accent. And <laughs> I worry when I'm doing it that I'm actually being racist towards my own people. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Um, where can people find you online and why, why can't they support you on Patreon? Um, they can't support me on Patreon because I set up a Patreon and, you know, with Patreon, you got the rewards thing. And right mm. away, I started panicking and bailing on the rewards because I felt the pressure of having to deliver, you know, things like that. And also, it was probably, honestly, it was also probably a bad time because I had just started working at the University of Melbourne, doing, you know, just kind of tutoring a few classes to get make the rent and things after getting fired from the ABC. So it was just too many things at the same time. I need to think about it again. Um, but you can find me on Twitter at Samisha, S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H. My website, which is sorely out of date, is the Samisha, as, uh, because I lost Samisha.com because I forgot to renew it <laughs> for like literally a day <laughs> and someone grabbed it and they wanted $1,000. So I ended up getting the Samisha.com instead, which sounds maniacally egotistical. Um <laughs> And I've got uh, three comedy albums, which are available on iTunes, Spotify, um, to buy, to listen to. And they're also linked on my website, as well as a bunch of different podcasts I've done over the years, including um, Troll Play, which is a wonderful podcast that people even now and then discover and go, oh, my God, this is delightful. Um, And why isn't there more of it? Exactly. And the answer is that the ABC decided that because it was about trolls, it was somehow inviting trolls. But yet, yet, by the way, I was trolled and relentlessly and, and, and they were protected more than me. Anyway, um, and then uh, let's see. And then, yeah, there's a bunch of other stuff also that I've done, like uh, two radio documentaries for Radio National, um, as well as a bunch of books that I've written all on the Sammy Shah.com. The Sammy Shah.com. Uh, thank you so much for having tea with me. It is always My a pleasure. delight.
do you know or do you not? This dolphin mistress we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the dolphins at every frame. Loudy rifle doll, loudy rifle day. On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you dolphins, cry up your ends. Loudy rifle doll, loudy rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doffers he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do. For Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifles all, lally rifles day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifles all, lally rifles day.